Good morning. Thank you so much. Do have a seat. I hope you're doing well. Wow, God is amongst us, isn't he? Um, just keep your heart open to him. I, I hope you're doing okay and having a good week. Am I all right with this microphone? Looking all right. Great. Um, for, I know that a number of us in this church have been praying for Simon Holly, who's the lead elder. He leads our leadership team. And um, we've been praying for him because he's been off sick for a while uh, with some chest pains and nausea. Just to say, I saw him earlier this week, and he's doing very well, going from strength to strength. So that's great news. Please do keep praying. Um, yeah, it's good news. We can thank God for that. We can thank God for that. Um, uh, personally, I'm very pleased that he's on, on the mend. Um, the reason being that in a few weeks' time, um, we have an event called New Days Got Talent, where we showcase some of the talent that our youth have, uh, and we buy tickets in order to come and watch them, and uh, all the money goes towards uh, helping subsidize the cost of their tickets to the New Day Youth Camp, um, which is just great. But um, this year, we have, I think the phrase would be, we've come under extreme pressure um, from the youth group uh, that the elders, for one time only, only should, should form an eldership boy band and perform on the stage. And I have to say to you, there is no way I'm getting on this stage without Simon Holly being here. So we need, to, we need to pray, we need to fast that he is restored to full health. I have to say to you, my worst nightmare is not that, um, that he's too poorly not to be here. My worst nightmare is that he's well enough to attend but not perform. That is my worst nightmare because I know he'll be sat there on the front row with his digital camera recording the whole event. So we need to pray hard, all right? So... Um, do, do keep standing with us in praying for him. All right, well, we're partway through our series on the book of Esther. I'm going to dive in, and uh, we're going to take a look at Esther chapter 4. If you've got a Bible, you want to turn there. Uh, if you haven't, don't worry. It's going to come up on the screen behind me, and I'm going to jump around a little bit just for the sake of time. The backdrop, if you missed last week, you need to watch Phil's outstanding talk on the start of Esther. The backdrop is this. We're 500 years before the birth of Jesus uh, and uh, many of the Jewish people still uh, live in a place called Persia under a, a, a vicious king called King Xerxes. Um, at the start of the book, uh, King Xerxes holds this massive festival over six months. It ends in a seven-day-long drunken party, uh, the culmination of which is that Xerxes uh, sends for his, his queen and wants her to appear wearing nothing more than her crown. Wisely, she refuses to take that deal, and um, he then deposes her, and Esther, a Jewish young, young girl, is put in place of her as the queen over all of Persia. So it's about God orientating events of world history in order to forward his kingdom and bless his people. Um, shortly thereafter, a guy called Haman comes onto the scene, and uh, he's the bad guy on all of this, and he hatches a plot in order to kill not just Esther's uncle Mordecai, but the entire Jewish race. He wants to wipe them off the face of the earth. Mordecai, not quite understandably, was upset about this, and he goes out into the courts, um, uh, and he's in ashes and sackcloth uh, as a sign of mourning about the impending genocide that's going to happen to the Jewish people. And Esther gets to hear about this. And we're going to pick it up in chapter 4, verse 4. So we're going to scroll through the first slide for me. So let's just read from verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, 
and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went out and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's promises know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. So she's saying, I can't go and speak to the king. He'll have my head if I go in uninvited. Except to the one the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. But as for me... I've not been called to come into the king for these 30 days, and she hasn't even seen him in a month. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. See, we've reached the pivotal point in the story of Esther. The whole series of events on an international but also a personal level have led to this moment in time. This is a life or death situation, not just for a few isolated individuals, but for an entire race, an entire nation. And chapter four, if you like, it, is the, the hinge on which the whole story of Esther swings. And it has one central message for us. That it, if you like, is a boiled down version of what the whole book of Esther is about. The central message is this. God takes imperfect people who find themselves in imperfect circumstances and draws them into his perfect plan. So this morning, I want to speak to imperfect people who find themselves in imperfect circumstances. That's who I want to speak to. So if you and your situation in life just feels very organized and manageable, uh, if you've got everything under control and just the way that you like it, if the worst challenge that you face is how to organize your sock drawer, then I'm afraid this morning isn't really going to be for you. If your life is just all rosy right now, then perhaps the best thing to do is to pretend to take notes on your mobile phone, but actually play Candy Crush instead. <laughs> but if, however, you're an imperfect person in imperfect circumstances, then this morning for you is for you. Perhaps... Maybe it's home life, perhaps it's domestically. You realize life isn't a walk in the park for you. It's more like a day at the zoo. Or perhaps it's financial. You know, you discover there's plenty of month left at the end of the money. Or maybe the relationships in your life are stretched to the breaking point. Or perhaps you've made some questionable choices in the past and you're suffering the consequences. Or perhaps it's simply that you're stressed up to the eyeballs with revision and exams. Perhaps for you, it's the workplace where the rubber hits the road. 
You've got a boss who graduated from the Attila the Hun School of Management, and you're having to deal with that. If you're stretched, demoralized, and slightly overwhelmed, then this passage of Scripture is for you. Because this morning, God wants to say to you that he takes people who aren't perfect and aren't in perfect situations, and he calls out destiny in them. He takes messed up circumstances and messed up people and weaves them into his beautiful, intricate, eternal plan. He wants to say to you, just as Katia brought to us, he's got it covered. He has you and your circumstances covered. Because if God can do it in Esther's life, he can certainly do it in ours. I mean, after all, look at her circumstances, uh, imperfect circumstances. Uh, this is where Esther lives. I've got a map coming up on the screen. She lives in the heart of the Persian Empire, a city called Susa, right in the middle of the map there. The largest superpower that the world had ever known up until that point. It's brutal, corrupt, despotic. King Xerxes is a vicious, pleasure-seeking sadist. There's no other words for it. He rules the empire with an iron fist, demanding godlike worship from all his subjects. And that's who Esther's married to. You thought you had problems. He is not Mr. Darcy from Pride and Prejudice. Beneath the cold, hard external lies a cold, hard internal. The Persians, these are the guys who first invented crucifixion as a means of torturing their victims to death. They are not nice guys. They do not have an investors in people plaque on the wall. <laughs> to make matters worse, Esther is from a dispersed and persecuted ethnic minority. She's keeping a low profile about her Jewish roots. And to cap it all, there's a plan to wipe God's people off the face of the earth. It has always been our enemy's desire to eradicate God's people. If you're a Christian here today, I'm afraid the hard news is that you were born onto a battlefield. That we have an enemy who wants to marginalize, terrorize, and intimidate us. He'll try anything he can to take us out of the action. To discourage us through our circumstances or our mistakes and failings. He'll do whatever he can to stop us reaching other people with the love and mercy of God. But whilst we're at war, we're certainly not exposed and vulnerable. Our commander-in-chief promises that you will never be tested beyond what you can endure. That he himself fights for us and that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And the angel of the Lord is not to be messed with. In virtually every place where Christians are persecuted, you also see new life breaking out wherever it might be. Whether it's Iran or China, wherever there's persecution, the gospel flourishes. So it's a battle, but at the end of the day, we know the outcome. I've read to the end of the book, and we win. It goes okay. So the national circumstances aren't great, but neither are Esther's personal circumstances. Her start in life hasn't been great. She's an orphan who's been raised by her cousin. She's uh, now married to this nightmare guy called Xerxes at the tender age of 14. We would call that child abuse. She's little more than an object or a plaything for the whims of the king. But the truth is, there's another king who's superior to the king on earth. She's trapped in a marriage that has much more to do with lust than it does with love. Life has brought her a raw deal, but it's not the end of the story. Of course, every single one of us, our circumstances are different. For some of us, like Esther, it's relationships that are so tough for us. For others of us, we've got significant health issues that have gone on not just for a week or two, but months and years. 
For others, it's grief or bereavement, depression or redundancy. I want to say, I don't have any glib, quick one-liners like a salve to your pain. But what I do want to say is that the Bible makes promises to people who are suffering in tough circumstances. You know, as a pastor, I see many people over weeks and months and hear about their circumstances and their situations. And regardless of whether it's health or relational issues, whatever it is, I tend to ask them one simple question. I ask them, what's the hardest part for you in living with these circumstances? And do you know the answer I get back most commonly of all? It's simply this. The hardest part is I feel like no one understands. It's not the physical pain or the relational pain, it's the isolation I most struggle with. And the ones who get through the other side aren't necessarily the ones who find an instant healing breakthrough or emotional release, great though that is. Now the ones that come through the strongest are the ones who encounter God in the suffering. Isaiah 43 says this, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Notice the promise isn't that there won't be rough waters, but that you won't be alone in it. We follow the God who identifies with us, who came and inhabited a body to be with us. Maybe this morning you wouldn't say that you're a Christian. If so, then I can't promise you that if you make God the boss of your life, that everything will all be wonderful, like the Centre Parks advert, where it's, it's fun and family time all the time. I can't promise you a suffering-free life, but I can promise you that you will never be alone. For many of us, our circumstances are far from perfect. And the danger is that we sometimes want our circumstances to change so that we can then be useful to God. We want our environment to be better so I can get rid of all this stuff and serve you, Jesus. But Esther's story tells us that God wants to use you in your messy situations. Acts 17 says that God himself determines the time set for us and the exact places where we should live. Now, my story isn't nearly as tough as many of you, but over the past couple of years, um, domestically, we've really struggled as our house has got flooded and been gutted and we're still renovating it and all the rest of it. And it was never the house we wanted to buy in the first place. It always felt like a lack of options rather than a choice. But I've been hanging on to this verse in Acts 17. And, and as, you know, I'm struggling to get the house sorted and do my bits of DIY, sadly, I, I have just enough ability with plumbing and electrics to be dangerous. That's really sort of the level I'm at. So we've had floods and then subsequent floods after I've done some more plumbing. And I've got demoralized and found it difficult, but I've hung on to Act 17. And then the other week, Emma and I were out the front moving some stuff out of the house. And we bumped into a neighbor that we've scarcely spoken to in recent years. And um, we started to chat to her, and um, she was asking about the house, and it became a topic of conversation. And then the conversation moved on, and uh, we said, we haven't seen you around um, in a little while. And she said, well, sadly, the first few months of this year, uh, my mother tragically died, and then my father-in-law died just a few weeks later. And she said to me, it's like I started to ask some big questions about what life is all about. She said to me, have you ever thought about those kind of questions? <laughs> I-, I wanted to say to her, I get paid to think about those questions, but I-, I decided not to. And instead, we just you know, gently led her in a conversation and we uh, asked her about what she was concerned about and we talked about the Alpha course as a place where you could ask questions. 
And all of a sudden, I, I remembered Acts 17, that God's ordained this specific place for us to live. And maybe it's all so that this young lady can encounter him. You are not here by accident. You don't live in Bedford by accident. Many of us, you know, if we're honest, living in Bedford wasn't the fulfillment of a lifelong dream. <laughs> you know, many of us here, you know, we, we love the beach and, and mountain climbing and we're in Bedford, lovely though it is. But God has brought us here for a purpose. God has got you here for such a time as this. So Esther's circumstances aren't perfect, neither is she perfect. Um, perhaps hardly surprising given her upbringing, but when Mordecai comes to her and says, look, how about you go before the king and uh, get us all rescued out of this circumstance, she says, actually, he's the guy that chops people's heads off when they come in unannounced, thanks, but no thanks. You know, the stake of two million people's lives is hanging in the balance here, but she says, I'm going to take a pass. I find that so refreshing, don't you? She, she chickened out, you know? All the Sunday school stuff has her as this, you know, elegant, stoic woman who goes into the king's chambers. No, she's terrified. And then Mordecai has a, another strategy. He says, just because you're living in the palace, don't think that you're going to escape the chop as well. You and your, your father's line will end with you. You're going to die too. At that moment, she finds a bit more courage, you know, and I find, that, I find that personally encouraging. Her motives are mixed at best. What's the message? The message is you don't have to be perfect to be used by God. Mixed motives and all, he can still use you. Sometimes we're waiting for our circumstances to change in order to be used by God. Other times we're waiting for us to be changed in order to be used by God. Either way, God says, I've got a destiny for you. You don't have to have a, had a perfect upbringing, and you don't have to be a perfect person to be used by God. I mean, just look at this list. I've got her up on the screen. I came across this. This is a list of Bible heroes, okay, the kind of people God uses. Noah drank too much. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Joseph was bullied. Moses had a speech impediment. Gideon was afraid. afraid. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah was too young. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah preached naked, wouldn't recommend it. Jonah ran away from God. Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. John the Baptist ate insects. Peter denied Christ. The disciples fell asleep at the prayer meeting. The Samaritan woman was divorced five times. Martha worried about everything. Paul was too religious. Timothy had an answer. And Lazarus was dead. You know, if you've got a pulse, then you're one step ahead of where Lazarus was at, okay? If God can use a dead guy, he can use you, yeah? You feel a little bit of faith rising in your spirit? You know, God always positions us for greatness. Not necessarily for prominence or profile, but always for greatness. Esther is a frightened young teenage girl, and God is about to use her to save two million people. She was born for such a time as this, and so are you and I. As I draw it to close, let me show you a photo on the screen of a friend of mine. She kind of epitomizes this. This young lady's name is Debs Harris. And um, many of you may not know her. Some of you will have heard me talk about her before. But um, Debs, uh, for a number of years, used to work for a Christian aid organization, a massive global charity. And... Um, 
she was part of their rapid response team. And her job amongst sort of six or so colleagues was that whenever there was a massive natural disaster or man-made disaster, they would be literally the first boots on the ground on behalf of their charity. And their job was to go in and travel light and suss out what the needs were on the ground so that then they could get the right appropriate help airlifted in. But you know, as you see her up on the screen here, and if you were to have seen her in her little encampment, it wouldn't have looked like much. Just a few tents and sleeping bags, people very often without running water and just living on basic rations. They don't look like much. But the truth is, she had incredible resources at her disposal. One of the world's largest charities with literally millions of pounds. Engineers, doctors, nurses, food aid, water treatment, everything to be brought in to a situation of need. If you like, into that encampment, working with the refugees, living in that environment, she may not have looked much, but the truth is, she was the advance guard of a different kingdom. And what made all the difference is that she and her team had satellite phones where they could then connect to HQ and get exactly what was needed airlifted in from outside into a position of need. People, you and I are advance guard of a different kingdom. We may not look like much. Look around. We don't look like much. But we have incredible resources at our disposal. You and I are people of destiny. And God has plans and purposes for you. As I was praying this morning, I felt like for too many of us, our ambition in life has been to get by. And this morning, God wants to deliver you from a survival mentality. I hope I make it through to Friday evening. I hope I don't lose my job. I hope the kids turn out all right. And instead, thinking about an abundant, thriving mentality, that you are here not to just get by and survive, but you are here to make a difference, to change this world. The only reason you're not in heaven now is so that you can stay here and take as many people to heaven with you as possible. You are agents of a different kingdom. You are powerful people. God has appointed before the foundation of the world good works for you to do, people for you to reach. I'll finish with this. You know, I mentioned about my neighbor. Well, at the end of the first meeting, someone else from the congregation came down the front. And she said to me, you know your neighbor? Her name isn't such and such. I was a bit taken aback. And I said, yeah, that's her name. At that moment, this young lady just instantly burst into tears. She said, she's one of my closest friends, and I've been praying for her for years that God would reach out to her. <laughs> What's happening? God's arranging a pincer movement. There's a holy ambush. There's destiny there. Not just for me, but for that young woman too. You and I are a people of destiny. Let's start living like that. Why don't we stand and pray?